Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Public health is the topic this week. First, we'll finish up the lecture by Dr. Andrea Beaton, a physician and associate professor of pediatrics at the Heart Institute at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Ohio. She spoke about telemedicine at Bellarmine University back in February 2020. If you want to hear the first half of this lecture, just check out last week's show, March 9, 2020. Let's hear from Dr. Beaton. Finally, we thought it'd be interesting to look at what the community thinks about telemedicine, right? So this is a Gulu. This is Gulu. Some kids sitting in Gulu, Uganda, waiting in line for their echoes at school, where we did a school-based program for rheumatic heart disease detection. And if you think about this, it, this is a community that sees very little technology. They don't have access to smartphones, and we're putting a system in place where they don't see an expert provider. And so we wanted to see what do they think about this system where they come in to see a nurse, and a day later they come back and get their diagnosis. And I was actually surprised with the acceptance level. And so we did focus groups and patient and provider surveys, and we found 93% of the patients thought this was really convenient. They were happy to not have to travel to the capital. 88% actually thought they got results more quickly than they did when they saw an expert consultant in the capital. And 96% felt telemedicine improved access to care. Um, we also, though, found that people were concerned. About a third of people said they were concerned about not having physician contact. And about 15% reported confusion and treatment recommendations. All of this is very preliminary, and we're comparing it to patients who see a provider in a regular setting to see if it's comparable or if there's a difference in telemedicine and if we can improve our messaging. We've actually uh, formed four patient focus groups at different areas where we're using telemedicine to see if we can provide an improved provider-patient relation. So just in summary, I'm going to finish a little early today. Rheumatic heart disease is just one example where we can use telemedicine to facilitate expert consultation, to build capacity, and to provide a conduit for high-quality research in low-resource settings. But we're hopeful this technology can accelerate closing the clinical and knowledge gap and contribute to the global resolution to end rheumatic heart disease. Thanks. So I kept it a little short on, pur on purpose today just to see if you guys had any questions around global health research, around telemedicine, around rheumatic heart disease. Thank you so much. Questions? So, thank you for coming first. My question, I know you use telemedicine for diagnosis. What about treatment plan? Is it also through telemedicine or the primary physicians who are in that place, like in vocal loop? It's a really good question, and we've done different things, but in our clinical programs, the experts in country, at least in Uganda, who provide those diagnoses also send a treatment recommendation plan back. Now, we provide a very simple, like, four-stage treatment program, so it's so you just one through three, may need nothing, might need simple medical follow-up, might need a little more complex medical follow-up. If you get to a four, like the child we saw who went for surgery, then we have systems in place for emergency transport to the capital. Do you guys ever struggle with communication barriers between not even the patient, but like the physician as well? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And in Uganda, the primary language is English. So that helps a lot and why many global health workers work in Uganda, just for the, the language barrier. But yes, we also struggle with cultural competency. So even though I've been in Uganda for 10 years, uh, working on and off, lived there for about two years total, I still struggle sometimes with how what I recommend is interpreted. And the, the way we have gotten around that and really improved and learned over the years is by engaging our local experts and our local counterparts who mainly run most of our research programs and our clinical capacity building now. Yeah, trying to make yourself in the background as much as possible now that we have the capacity has led to vastly more success. So what cultural and environmental factors do you think make these people more vulnerable to rheumatic heart disease? Yeah, it's a really good question. So rheumatic heart disease comes wherever there's poverty. So really interesting. So lack of access to primary care doctors so no treatment for strep throat in the community is the main driver, but also household crowding and poor hand sanitation. So when people live closer, they bed share, there's more strep transmission. Funny thing with strep is the more it sees other strep, the more rheumatogenic it becomes. And we don't know exactly what that factor is yet, but strep in the U.S., even if you don't treat it, is much less likely to cause a case of rheumatic fever. We see it, but much less likely than a strep infection in Uganda. What we also see is that when health systems break down, so a great example is the former Soviet bloc countries. The rates of rheumatic fever are similar to the United States before uh, Eastern Europe reformed. Then we saw with the fractioning of those countries and their health systems, the rates of rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease skyrocketed and are only now starting to come back under control. So it just tracks this, the strength of the health system. We also see if we look in the United States, and I didn't show you guys this data today, but rates of rheumatic heart disease track other health disparities. So it lights up down the Mississippi River Delta. It lights up on the Native American reservations, Hawaii, Alaska, very high rates of rheumatic fever compared to the rest of the country. And so just areas where access to care is less. My concern is about the satellite feeds. Mm. Are you constantly struggling with direct access through the internet? Yeah, so we use mostly cell phone based services. So we work with a group and I, I didn't highlight the technology in this piece, it's not my area of expertise, but we work with a group called Imaging the World who has delivered obstetrical ultrasound to healthcare clinics all over Sub-Saharan Africa and they have developed a proprietary software that compresses these large files into the size of about a cell phone picture. And so what happens in most of these settings is that overnight, the laptops transmit all the images so that when we get the pictures the next day. But it is always tricky and we always have to test our technology ahead of time. We also really use WhatsApp. I'm not sure if you guys use that technology. It works amazingly well. So I get like a dozen EKGs every day from the field on that technology. Uh, and we've had really good access, especially for emergency consultations, just taking a picture of the echo screen. Obviously not high tech, but can get there immediately. Uh, thank you. Curious, do you see a, a role for wearable technology in the future for follow-up, like some of these level two and three that aren't quite emergency, but have disease in progress? process? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think everyone's really interested right now in wearable technologies to improve health outcomes. 
I don't think there's a role in rheumatic heart disease because until it's bad, there aren't really any physiological parameters that you could be watching, but there's a huge role, I think, for things like hypertension and other drivers of high cardiovascular mortality in Africa. And I know folks are looking into some of those technologies, particularly around hypertension and and control. Can you explain for those of us that don't know what is wearable technology? So wearable technology is something you send a patient home with that can provide remote monitoring. So in the pediatric cardiology world, it's not really wearable, but the most effective use of this technology so far has been in helping babies with critical congenital heart disease survive at home. And so there's a condition where you're only born with half of your heart. And so in between surgery stages, a lot of these kids were dying. And they implemented this home monitoring program where every day the mom or the dad checks the heart rate, the oxygen saturation, and the weight twice a day. And those data points feed into a computer system. And as soon as there's a tiny variation in that, the patient's brought in for care. And what we've shown is they doubled survival between those stages of surgery by providing that remote sort of wearable monitoring. In adult worlds, wearable monitoring has been used a lot for rhythm problems. So when when adults have intermittent heart rhythm problems that can cause a lot of issues, they have a wearable EKG sensor. And so it can alert immediately when they go into a non-functional rhythm. And so you can avert cardiac events through that. And use of wearable technology in lower income settings and in the United States is really hot right now. AHA actually put out like a $12 million grant application around tech and innovation, specifically focused on wearable devices to improve cardiovascular health recently. Who funds your research? Oh, thank you for asking. (laughs) We need more people. So in general, it's academic research funds. So Cincinnati Children's, actually, that's who I work for, has a fair amount of research dollars, but also the Thrasher Research Fund, which is a pediatric research fund, is funding a big clinical trial. The American Heart Association is funding the the rheumatic fever study. And then for the telemedicine piece, which again, it's really a tiny piece of what I do, the telemedicine is actually really interesting that a lot of tech companies, so Verizon funded the project in Brazil because they have a data center there, so wanted to give back to their community through use of their data center. Edwards Life Sciences, who makes heart valves, has funded a lot of the work in technology. So really trying to align the interests of companies with with the technology you want to deliver has been really successful on the technology side. So I'm also curious as if with telemedicine you guys are focusing on prevention for long-term care and not just treatment. Yeah, it's a really good point. So how do we deliver primary prevention, which is how you prevent rheumatic fever to start with? And the, the feeling around primary prevention is shifting. So when you look at cost per case prevented, the old wisdom has always been in rheumatic heart disease that primary prevention isn't affordable. It's not the right strategy. It's targeting patients who have rheumatic fever or early rheumatic heart disease and getting them on secondary prophylaxis. Because the, so secondary prophylaxis is providing a monthly penicillin injection that prevents you from getting another strep infection can be really effective if you can find cases. And all of the modeling that's been done has suggested that's the place to target. However, you're never gonna have a comprehensive program without primary prevention. But primary prevention is very low technology. You just need to get the word out there that strep and sore throat's important, and that healthcare workers need to be diagnosing sore throat, they need to be using penicillin judiciously, 
and that patency to come in. Really interesting. So we're just starting work in primary prevention in Uganda right now, but 80% of patients don't seek formal healthcare assessment for sore throat. They go to traditional healers. So what we found when we looked in the community is that sore throat is the most common presentation to traditional healers. Traditional healers do a procedure called local tonsillectomy, which we were horrified to learn about, which is scraping the back of the throat until pus and blood come out, uh, which, you know, strep treats itself either way. That probably increases your risk of rheumatic fever, although we don't have any data for that. You'd think there'd be more immune reaction. Uh, and that it's very well accepted in the community, even at much higher levels than the ministry was aware of. And so the Ministry of Health in Uganda is tackling primary prevention as their first step on this national action plan. And we've got some pilot sites running to look at pragmatic treatment programs. So diagnostics aren't available in the community. You just have to treat all or treat based on clinical decision rules. But we're looking to see if rates of rheumatic heart disease will drop in the communities where we target these intensive prevention efforts. So it's all just starting to come around. Yes. How did you choose Uganda? Yeah. Yeah, just luck, really. So um, I did my residency at Mount Sinai in New York. Did my medical school here in Louisville. Did residency at Mount Sinai, and they had a global health program where we had a connection in Uganda. I knew I was going to do my cardiology fellowship in Washington, D.C., and I knew they had a connection to Uganda. So my career actually wasn't going down a research path at all. I was just fulfilling my regular requirements, but wanted to go abroad. So I went to Center College and did a lot of traveling through my undergrad through a peace and religion studies major. And so was in Uganda and met some really great collaborators and happened to be able to do my fellowship project there, which was successful. And I think 80% of the success in global health research is building a sustainable collaboration with people who have a shared interest on the ground, right? So when we think of new research questions, we talk to the Ministry of Health, we talk to our providers on the ground, we let them drive our priorities and our next directions, and also look for engagement with our local nurses and research staff. And so when I started, we had undergrad students like yourselves, but usually between undergrad and med school who would live in Uganda for a year at a time, who would help us sort of supervise and run our projects. And over the years, we've moved fully to local capacity, so I have 25 research nurses who are Ugandan who run our projects now and have built a rheumatic heart disease research center at the Uganda Heart Institute that can support the projects more broadly. And so it's just a successful collaboration. Other questions? I'm wondering if students in the room are interested in this kind of field, either telemedicine or international medicine, kind of two questions. One, recommendations that you have for getting involved in those types of programs. And two, what are some of the kind of job pathways that students could look into that aren't necessarily an MD yeah. if they aren't necessarily interested in going to med school? Yeah. yeah, and I'd say med school is great for global health, but it's also tricky because you have a lot of clinical responsibilities. A lot of the folks I work with have taken the path of a master's in public health. So epidemiology, a master's in public health, nursing actually is a great role for getting involved in research and in global health work. And then some of the allied health fields, such as we have a respiratory therapist who travels with us a lot. I think that the most important point of the career choice and path is as you're moving through your career, whatever it is, getting on-ground experience is probably the most critical key and long on-ground experience is probably the most critical key to actually building a career. 
So I tell my fellows who want to do global health research or my residents that I work with that they need to carve out a period of significant time, three months, six months of on-ground time to truly understand the realities and how to partner effectively with a group. And that's been the most successful key to those people moving on. So whatever your field is, thinking about your life and your commitments and when you can do that time, because that's tricky as you get older especially, and undergrad and between undergrad and grad school and grad school are a great time to do those things. And a lot of us in the field, like myself, have opportunities for undergrad students, people who want a research experience or an elective and can set those things up. So I think getting connected early to make sure it's what you want to do and when you have the time to be abroad is really important. Thank you guys for having so many questions. It was really fun to get to chat with you today. Thank you. Thank you to Bellarmine University and Dr. Andrea Beaton of the Cincinnati Children's Hospital for giving us permission to broadcast her lecture. Check out our March 9th, 2020 episode for the first half of her talk. And now, coronavirus. Let's eavesdrop on a recent interview on C-SPAN TV that was just recorded on March 13th, 2020, the topic was the new coronavirus, and it features Dr. Julie Fisher, Associate Research Professor at Georgetown University's Center for Global Health, Science, and Security. Dr. Fisher received her Ph.D. in microbiology and immunology from Vanderbilt University, and she did her postdoc research at the University of Washington. Now, we're only hearing parts of this public domain C-SPAN recording, so check out our webpage at forwardradio.org slash benchtalk to find a link to the entire interview. So let's get on with the interview. The host of the show is John McArdle. Julie Fisher joins us now. She's a research professor at Georgetown University's Center for Global Health, Science, and Security, here to help us better understand the coronavirus and the federal response to it. But first, when it comes to the virus itself, what do we know at this point and how much still remains unknown. We have a lot of data from what unfolded in China early in this epidemic. And obviously, the situation has evolved quickly. We're still trying to understand even some of the basic biology of the virus. But we do have a grasp at this point about who is at moderate risk of disease versus who is at risk of very severe disease, understanding who needs to be most protected from ongoing disease transmission, and, um, and understanding enough about the virus to really start putting together diagnostics and begin the process of developing vaccines and other countermeasures. It's a long process, but we have enough knowledge now to get on that pathway. What's the most important thing to learn right now about the virus itself? I think the most important thing to learn about the virus is to understand when people are using terms like case fatality rate, when they're using terms like transmission, what that means. We're throwing the words around I think because they are technical terms, they have a different meaning to people who are working in epidemiology and public health than they might have when they echo in other settings. So I, I think the most important thing to learn right now to understand is that we think that most young, otherwise healthy people are at risk of infection but not necessarily at risk of very severe disease. Their risk is lower. That people who are older, who have underlying conditions like cardiovascular disease, heart disease, respiratory diseases, diabetes, they appear to be at higher risk of more severe disease. And that's in, in the most affected parts of Europe, Italy, in China. Those are the people who seem to be at highest risk of having severe pneumonia, life-threatening pneumonia. So I think that's what we clearly understand right now. 
when we throw around terms like case fatality rate of 2%, 3%, it gives an impression that we have a really strong grasp on an odds ratio that is really right now still an estimate. We're still trying to understand. But we know who's at highest risk and who we need to protect most. Another term thrown around. Coronavirus at this point has been genetically sequenced. Mm-hmm. What does that mean and what do we do with that? So that's actually a really interesting and exciting development in this outbreak that happened quite early. The Chinese researchers published a full genetic sequence of an isolate of coronavirus from a patient relatively early in the outbreak. It came from a patient in very late December. They sequenced it and published the full sequence in, in January. What that means is that we have a map of the full genetic complement of the virus that helps us understand first immediately which viral family it belonged to, which sounds kind of academic, but it really then helps you understand what the characteristics of that virus are likely to be. The second thing is that that genomic sequence, the letters that make up the full genome of the virus, the the genetic complement, the, the blueprint for the virus, are a template that we use to make diagnostic testing kits using molecular diagnostic testing, uh, which is a very rapid way of of testing for viruses that doesn't require you to have a lot of isolates from patients to begin designing the tests. So when we say we have the full genome of the virus, it lets us do several things. One, it lets us understand some characteristics about the virus. Second, it lets us compare viral isolates from different places and different times to understand if the virus is changing. So are there different strains right now? They appear to be pretty conserved. They are the isolates that are being sequenced and those sequences that are being published on open source databases suggest that this is this virus is not changing rapidly. There are enough viral clues that let scientists tell sort of when a virus has been introduced into a population to, to use it as a clock, but it doesn't look like there's a huge amount of variation. So what is the clue that there seems to be different mortality rates in different countries around the world? So what does that tell us then? It suggests that it's not the virus itself but it's either the underlying health of the population that's being affected or something about the way that the outbreak is being managed. Julie Fisher is our guest, associate research professor at Georgetown University's Center for Global Health Science and Security with us to take your questions as we try to understand coronavirus, the outbreak and the response. South Korea being lauded for its testing capacity here. What have they been able to do right and why on that? And why can't we replicate that? Or are we replicating that? Well, I I think just to begin with what South Korea is doing and why we are looking to them for lessons in what works. South Korea was very aggressive right out of the gate in developing a really robust diagnostic testing capacity. That means the ability to test a lot of people accurately and quickly. And I think what we are looking to South Korea to learn how it has worked is the way they first got their diagnostic tests out the door. To summarize it, what they've done is they they have really pushed a very positive risk communications message, and they've done a good job figuring out how to manage cases and test them outside of hospitals and other health facilities. So, for example, they are really getting out the message. If you think you've been exposed, if you have symptoms, if you're even worried that you've been exposed, here are diagnostic testing stations, many of which um, we've... You've, A lot of people have seen pictures are drive-through testing stations. But even where they're not drive-through, they are um, pushed out, not on health facility grounds. So come here and get tested. We'll collect your contact information, and we'll let you know in just a few hours what the results of that are. And then they are following up really aggressively for people who are tested. They can get a message that either says via text, via other electronic communications, good news, you were negative. You should keep taking those precautions, but you have not tested positive right now, or you have tested positive. You have, if you have mild symptoms, here's what you should do. 
you can self-quarantine, stay at home, take care of yourself, stay away from others, try to prevent yourself from infecting others. If you're not comfortable with that and you need to be with people, they have set up um, care facilities for people who have mild disease that are not medical facilities necessarily. They're converted government facilities, community center-like approaches, like we do in a disaster, like a hurricane, where you give people shelter. You make sure they're in a place where they can have meals and a place to... to uh, to uh, be sheltered with others so that they're not isolated, but still quarantined, but not putting a big burden on the healthcare system. And that's sparing their hospitals to provide care for those who are the most severely ill. So I think what's, what's fascinating about what um, South Korea has done, they've pushed testing. They've been incredibly transparent in risk communications. They're letting people know on a very, very micro geographical level where cases have occurred that are near them to urge them to take precautions and be aware. And they're, um, they're giving people options for care with clear instructions about what it means and what requires intensive medical follow-up and what can be taken care of on a more community basis. We have about a minute or two. I wonder what haven't we covered yet in, in the past hour that you think it's important that we should be talking about here? I think what people are asking now in their communities when we are seeing such widespread social disruption and closures is whether a lot of people say, are we overreacting? Is this is this a, a crazy thing to do? And I think the answer is that right now, because we have not had diagnostic testing, we don't entirely know the level of spread at the community level in some parts of this country, that those measures are our best tool to try to flatten the curve, to slow the spread of disease so that we make sure that we have enough medical resources to care for people if they do become ill, because we don't want to see ourselves in the position of this country of having to ration care and deciding who gets the best quality of care and who does not. So while these are very disruptive to our daily lives, it's us as a society using the tools we have to try to protect those who are most vulnerable And it is a disruption, and it's having an impact on the economy. And some people are going to have to make very hard decisions about working versus staying home and caring for their families. But it's the tool we have, and it's the protection we can offer to each other. When you talk about flattening the curve, for how long? At this point, anyone who tells you they know the exact end date of this, is it's conjecture. But I think what we can say is we can look in each of our communities at how many healthcare beds we have, look at the size of our population, and do some math. How long do we have to spread out this curve so that we make sure we have enough intensive care units at any point? Um, CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services offer modeling tools that could be used by local and state officials and hospital administrators to do that math. So I think the answer is we're trying to push it out now in the short term for about two weeks. In most communities, the, the hope is that in two weeks, we will have flattened that curve, spread out the new infections, and then People can mix and mingle again, and the natural rate of the spread of disease will be slowed down enough that just doing the math will have enough beds to care for people who become severely ill. So I think at this point, we're looking at disruptions for at least a couple of weeks, but I think people will have to reassess then again at the end of March and see, have we done enough or do we need to keep pushing it out a little more? Julie Fisher is a research professor at the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University. We very much appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate all the great questions. That was Dr. Julie Fisher, Associate Research Professor at Georgetown University. She was interviewed on C-SPAN TV on March 13, 2020. Check out our webpage to hear the rest of this interview.
Well, that's our show today. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. Now, this show is broadcasted on Forward Radio every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.